You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Technology and family, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, when I was a kid, grab a stick, go hit a tree. <laughs> that was my childhood. Stick tree games. But now our kids can have iPhones, iPads. Our toddlers can have them. I mean, there's so much going on for a kid today with technology. And the kids want them, right? They're begging for a phone at age eight. How come, how come, how come Jake gets a phone? Well, Jake's 18. Jake's 20. Jake, Jake's... You know, in college. Well, I know, but I go to school. How do you keep your kids from getting sucked into this crazy vortex called tech? And uh, when you think about it, how do we make sure that we raise these children in a healthier family-oriented way? Especially when you talk about... um, We don't have any clue what an iPhone is going to do long-term to a child. The social skills lost, we don't know. The memory, the attention, the ability to focus, we don't know the long-term impact of what this technology will do on our kids. We've only had it for a few years, right? We do know, according to some research uh, by Microsoft, about attention – that our kids are losing, their attention span is dropping. In fact, one of the studies basically compares, you know, our attention span to being, um, I think it's about eight seconds. We have an attention span of about eight seconds. The average, I think, goldfish has about a nine-second attention span. They can focus on something for about nine seconds before they're like, whoa, shiny thing. And part of that is probably because we can just defer, right? We can go right back to our cell phone. And my kids, for example, they know they don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because they just can find it on their phone. So how do we integrate the technology of our of our lives and keep our family um, healthy, keep them focused, and keep them safe? That's uh, that's really what we want to talk about in this hour of the show. Also, one of the um, the big things we we really deal with, and I deal with it a lot with my family, is how do I discipline around it? Because I, if I take my kid's phone away, I immediately have all the power in the house. I mean, I can get my kids to do anything with their phone because that's the great source and the great anchor. And I'm not sure if that's good or not. I mean, at some point. Is If that's my only access tool to have any power with my child, then I might be setting myself up. So we want to find other ways to connect. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking with Janelle Burley Hoffman about um, the, the importance of, of really managing your technology with your children and with your families. But one of the first things I've realized in my own life is if I don't have the discipline to manage myself, I won't have the discipline to manage my child. And I notice it's harder and harder for me to actually just turn off the device and not to just naturally go to it. It's something that 
to me seems like I naturally just defer to the, the phone. So one of the big things I've I've been a big um, proponent of is let's start having a fast uh, where we just we just turn off the tech and we go without the tech. Let's just turn it off and see if we can go a week. Um, we've had, in fact, we've talked to our own, you know, Spencer Linton, who's uh, on BYU Sports Nation, and he lost his phone um, when he was on a trip with his wife somewhere. Somebody actually stole his phone, and he was without a phone for four or five days. And he said, honestly, it made their trip better. Having the phone stolen was difficult. That's hard. But he said it made our family trip better because it allowed us to spend time as a couple just phoneless and focusing on each other. He and his wife, I think, lost their phones. So do you have to have your phone stolen? Is that the best way, the fastest way to uh, to be able to handle technology? And do you just look at yourself? Do you have the discipline yourself to to turn off the phones, to take the phones? Do you have the ability to, to not have to have the phones being a major part of your life? And again, I don't want to be anti technology. I think it's fascinating and I think it's incredible what's happening. And yet we also still need to relate, right? At some point, we still need to uh, to learn how to be healthier and, and I guess actually more effective with our technology. For example, uh, some research came out talking about our children. Did you know that our children open – they have an open rate of their text messages – of about 99% of text messages are read. 99% of the messages that they receive every year, I mean every day, are read by the child. And when you think about that, I mean we're so frustrated by our kids because they don't do what we want them to do except – and we can't even get them to pay attention to us – except they will open all of their text messages. How on earth are we supposed to succeed with our kids when they don't even listen to us, when we don't even have that power with them, that influence with them? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It's a different day. It's a different age. And I've talked about it on the show before about how many times I've told my kids something and then they Googled it and they corrected me. No, Dad, it's 184,000 miles. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Do you remember back in the day when you didn't have to be exactly accurate? Because the latest Encyclopedia Britannica you had was 14 years old? Nope, not anymore. Now, folks, you got to deliver. Now you got to be able to hit it right on the mark and you got to hit it on the mark every single time. So technology, it's not going away. And I do believe that there is a time and a place where we're going to have to figure our lives out enough to start leading the technology instead of letting it lead us and beat us up. So let me give you some tips and some tools for um, for leading the technology in your life, in your family, not just reacting to it, not just having to take it the way it is. Let's just teach you some basic skills for how you and your family can manage the technology in your life. First thing, I would make it an overt conversation. I would bring it out of the darkness. I would throw it up right into the middle of a conversation with your family 
And I would simply say, technology, I'm worried, folks. I'm worried, kids. What, what, what do you see happening with it? And if I were you, I'd try to get your kids to start teaching you about what's really happening with technology. Because to let you in on a crazy little secret, you don't have a clue what's really going on with technology because your kids know stuff you don't even think is possible. They have information you didn't even know was accessible. They have tools they're using that they don't – you don't even – you think you know. You think you know. You think you know what Snapchat is? You don't even know how they're using it, I bet. So what's cool is when I open a discussion up with my kids, some of the younger ones will tell us stuff that the older ones are doing. Some of the older ones will tell us stuff that their friends are doing. And it opens up a whole new conversation that for all of us becomes pretty enlightening. Um, And I'd even overtly talk about uh, issues like pornography and what happens when they see pornography online, what they should do. Um, I wouldn't just demonize it. I wouldn't just sit there and blow it up and make it – you know, this horrible thing. I mean, it's horrible, but what I would teach my kids is what to do when they see it. I wouldn't just teach them that it's just gross and horrible. I would teach them that when you see it, do this. Turn off the computer, come and find me, and we'll we'll get rid of it. Don't be afraid. I don't because the minute you demonize it, folks, and the minute you start making it a horrible horrible thing that shames the person, all of a sudden they're going to take it underground and you're not going to have access to that child. The downside to um, like pornography, for example, is many of the people that are actually using it and becoming addicted to it, they are they have anxiety. They're, they're anxious and they're using it as an anti-anxiety. They're using it as something that will calm them down, make them relax. It's the brain chemistry behind a lot of this technology that's the problem. It's not always the content. Like we always talk about the violence of the video games. But violence aside, those kids playing video games, it's medicating their brain. That's why they're doing it is because it medicates them. It numbs them. So we can argue about violence all day or we can argue about pornography all day. In my world, I'm more worried about the medication effect. There's a reason they're choosing to go be medicated by that. So watch out for it and be careful because if you shame your child, if you shame your family too much about this technology or about what you saw on their phone and you shame them and you call them evil and you call them dirty and guess what's going to happen? They will go underground. They will take the issue and they'll hide it underground. And the minute it goes underground, you're not going to be able to deal with it as well. So instead, just address it full on. Talk about the impact of it. Talk about what happens when we get um, caught up into some technology. Talk about what uh, about balance. Talk about moderation. Talk about why it's important to be able to read and why it's important to read books, not just play video games. Video games are great. And I'm going to bet, folks, that our future is going to be filled with video game opportunities. More and more occupations are going to be coming from these video gaming industries because a lot of our interface, a lot of the ways that we're going to interact with computers are going to be coming from some of the ways that they're already doing video gaming. We already know that we can now have drone pilots 
that are video game experts that can now go work with the military and fly drones all over the world. Well, yeah, but that's only one thing. Well, except that we also found out that there's technology teams that can go get scholarships at universities around the country by playing on a video game team. And video or uh, universities are now sponsoring video game teams and scholarships are being won. So your kid could actually go on scholarship to a university, a nice university, because they're a video gamer. What? That's not even a sport. You know what? It is. It's starting to be. Technology, folks, it's not going away. And we have to play it at a different level than we've ever played it before. So be careful. Be careful of demonizing them. Be careful of demeaning or shaming your child because because they play video games. Be careful of shaming them if you've caught them looking at pornography or something like that. I get that that's your instinct and I get that it's against your value system. I'm totally with you. And the shame is going to do two things. It's going to probably increase the likelihood of them going back to it to medicate. It's also going to um, end up taking the the issue, the sin, the the tech addiction or whatever underground. So be careful. Be careful. There's really not a good purpose to ever shame someone. Or stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we encounter strangers everywhere we go, whether it's at an event, the grocery store, or just walking down the street. You know, there's a stranger, somebody we've never met before. Many people will just ignore those that are outside of their circle. But our next guest says you should find a way to introduce yourself. Keo Stark is the author of the new book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. She's here today to talk us through her philosophy of uh, meeting strangers. Keo, thank thank you so much for being with us. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. What what an interesting um, theory, uh, I guess, hypothesis you have going on here. are Are you an extrovert? Mostly, yeah. I'm, you know, I definitely still need a little time to myself, but yeah, yeah. I do enjoy conversation. Because when I was reading this, I'm thinking, man, because uh, there's sometimes I, I will make comments to a, a lot of people I don't know just because it's strange being in an elevator with another human being and not identifying. But um, there's other times I just want to be left alone. So talk to us about your philosophy and your theory on why we need to reach out and meet more people, more strangers. Sure. Um, So I think there are kind of two different sets of reasons. The first set of reasons is very emotional um, about feeling connected. And the other is the more kind of political openness um, that we really need more of in the world. And talking to strangers is one way to build that yourself. And then if enough people do it to incrementally increase our general uh, level of tolerance in our society, tolerance hmm. and understanding. What, when did you start this? What what started the the interest into this relationship with with those around us? Well, it's funny. I grew up in a family where pretty much everyone talked to strangers, and 
it was just what you do. You're friendly to strangers. You get into conversations. You look people in the eye. You say hello. That was kind of our conventional behavior. And I graduated from high school. When I first moved away from my family, I lived in the South. I went to college in the South. And then I moved back north and realized that that this was not how everybody lived their lives <laughs> and that I was probably in the minority a little bit yeah. um, in terms of my openness and willingness and interest in talking to strangers. That was a bit of a long, slow realization, but once it really crystallized, I immediately became fascinated with, like, what did this mean to me and why don't people do it and where do they and where don't they and what makes people uncomfortable with it. Um, so then I started to really both think concretely about it and do a lot of research and start asking people kind of annoyingly constantly about <laughs> their own experiences. Well, I mean, it, it's got to begin with stranger danger. Right. Like all of a sudden yeah. we were trained and, and especially, I mean, my kids um, grew up at a time where, you know, people were getting kidnapped. And uh, I mean, I guess people have always been being kidnapped, but the news about kidnapping victims. And um, anyway, so this this fear of strangers, is it a fear that drives us to not want to interact? Um, what is it that keeps us from just seeing everyone as a fellow traveler? Well, I think fear is a really substantial um, part of it. I mean, there are lots of, you know, uh, momentary reasons why you might not talk to strangers when you're walking down the street. You're busy, you're grumpy, you're shy. But I think fear is a really significant factor in the way we avoid each other. And uh, you know, I personally in my household wasn't brought up with the idea of stranger danger, but everyone around me was. Mm. And I think it's a really damaging idea. I think it's important, incredibly important to teach our children how to deal with people they don't know, including not going anywhere with them, um, you know, not responding to adults who are asking you for help, um, not eating food a stranger gives you. Those are all really important, but categorically writing off don't talk to anyone you don't know is, is, has really hurt us. And you're right that the media at a certain point really latched on to these stories about kidnappings and abuse. And the fact is and always has been that kids mostly get abducted by people they know, people mm. who are familiar to them. Yeah. Most stranger-on-stranger -stranger violence um, sorry, most violence that happens is between people who know each other. Stranger-on-stranger stranger violence is almost exclusively associated with robbery, and it's a really small percentage of it. So what I have started to really think about is, you know, why, why is it so upsetting that it becomes, you know, obsessively covered in the media and talked about? And I think one of the reasons is, it just goes against our idea of how the world should work. You, you know, it's so random when a stranger hurts a stranger or kidnaps a stranger. The world shouldn't work that way. You should be able to protect yourself. And this kind of randomness just really upsets us hmm. and puts a focus on those kinds of stories. And to, uh, what I really hope is that we can start to back up from that and keep our kids safe without alienating them completely from anyone who doesn't they don't know or who looks unfamiliar from them who looks different than they do
I, I mean, that's part of it, too, I guess, is that um, it's how we define stranger, right? Because exactly. the, even the word stranger, it's just they're strange. It's there's something ominous about it. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. but in reality, like you're saying, the majority, the vast majority of humans w- would help you in an instant to, you know, if you were hurting or needed something. Um, yeah. And yet we immediately have this kind of this averse reaction. Well, one funny thing is that when you actually ask people to define stranger, you get an incredibly wide range of answers. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to think about. How do you define stranger for yourself? Is it someone you've never met? Is it someone whose name you don't know? Is it someone you've never seen before? Is it someone who doesn't share your context? Is it someone who doesn't look enough like you? Um, is it just anyone who is unfamiliar and feels threatening? Like if somebody who's unfamiliar but doesn't feel threatening isn't a stranger. Um, all of those things are important for us to think about. And when somebody tells me that they think talking to strangers is a bad idea or scary or dangerous, I I ask them questions because you can't ever change anyone's mind by telling them things. Right. So I ask them you know, why do you think it's a bad idea? Who do you think is a stranger? When do you first remember thinking about it that way? What have your personal experiences been? Um, To try to understand it, because if you understand somebody's perspective a little more, you can really discuss it with them. And sometimes for somebody to articulate why they think things already changes their own mind. Mm -hmm. I love the idea, too, that you ask the question. Talk about you have a great story, and I don't know if this was the moment that you knew. Okay, I got to get into the stranger thing. Um, when you were on the streets, was it New York of New York, and a man just standing on the corner made a comment to you? Talk, tell us that story and and how that sure. started this. Sure, this is such a great sort of crystalline moment, and it's actually not the you know, epiphany sort of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good stand-in for that. Yeah. Um, it'll so, do. It'll do. <laughs> so I was standing on the corner, and uh, in New York, a lot of people are in such a hurry that they stand in the street waiting to cross it rather than on the sidewalk. Right. As if that really, like, Gives you an second is going to mean something. Right. And I was doing that, and I was standing on top of a storm drain, um, so I'm standing next to this man. He's, he's an older man. He's wearing a long overcoat. He's got a, a hat on, even though it's not freezing out. Um, he just has this demeanor. He looks like a character from a movie. Mm. And so it's already slightly surreal. And then he turns to me and he points to the sewer grate and he says, don't stand there. You might disappear. Mm. Uh, that's the weirder thing anyone said to me this year. <laughs> but okay. Um, I step back and he said, Good. So gently. Good. You know, now you're safe because I might have turned around. You never know. And zoop, you're gone. And I just thought, okay, like this guy really saw me. He saw my face. He saw my whole, you know, existence as a person. And he thought I was in danger and he wanted to save me. So there was this tremendous sense of acknowledgement and this momentary bond between us. And then I crossed the street and he crossed the street and we never saw each other again. But that moment was such a strong feeling of connectedness and acknowledgement that it really, um, it it did really crystallize some of my thinking around us. Well, and isn't that 
that's like it seems like one of the most basic human needs is to just be acknowledged as existing. Yeah, I really think so. And to feel seen. I mean, you know, in the city here, uh, you walk around and if you're not really present, then you're not seeing people. You're seeing obstacles in your path. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really, like, practice it, you know, walk around the block or take your walk from wherever you get out of your car to wherever you're going and really look at everybody. Try to look them in the eye. If they don't look back at you, don't worry about it. But think, okay, I'm seeing all the people around me. That is a really profound gesture to be making, and it um, it really affects how you feel. And you can see it on people's faces. If you connect with them and say hello, they feel seen. They feel acknowledged. They are a human to you in a way that they wouldn't have been if you didn't see them. Yeah. And tell me... So there's because uh, I've done this and and I've been in that moment and where you you just I, I guess you're just more present you're seeing yeah you're seeing people as um, as Martin Buber called it as as vows kind of with a more respectful vow kind of view instead of an it a thing oh that's beautiful yeah and um, I guess talk to us about what's the benefit of this I. I is it changes us? What it? How does it change us? Sure. Excuse me. I'm coming down with a cold. Um. I think for me, the idea is that these interactions are moments of intimacy. So we need to feel like we belong somewhere. We need to feel connected to the people around us, the places we're in, and those needs are needs for intimacy. We normally think, okay, intimacy, I need to feel like I belong, I need to feel connected, I need to feel loved. I get that from the people that I'm close to and the people who I talk to about, you know, my very personal feelings. And the thing is, there is another way that you can feel connected and belong, and that is when you connect with a stranger. Just in a fleeting moment, this is somebody you'll never see again, but you have a moment where there is emotional resonance that is a moment of intimacy, and that sustains us, and it changes us. If you walk through the world feeling that way more, you feel very differently about the world around you, and the people you're interacting with, it's likely that they do as well. Yeah, I guess you feel like you're not alone. You feel you like you belong to a greater whole. Yeah. Boy, that, I mean, imagine how healing that could be just to not have to fight the the battle of being by yourself and alone and um yeah and i think it you know it gives people a sense of community that they do get elsewhere um you know work church synagogue um mosque uh there's a lot of places where you can get a sense of community and communion and for me, you also get it in these interactions, mm. and you can increase it. And if you're not somebody who belongs to those kinds of community, it's even more important. Yeah, you can you can still get it. We'll take a break. More with Keo Stark and her book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You and uh, Really Create a Sense of Community. When we come back, we'll get into how we actually do it. How do we talk to the stranger? How do you start that conversation? Stick with us. We'll be right back.
and friends to the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the program with us today is Keo Stark. She is the author of the book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. And uh, as a journalist, uh, an interactive advertising expert, a researcher, a writer, she's putting it all together to help us understand the power in some of these um, these interactions we have with a stranger, somebody we don't even know, but how it could take us to a different level of, of peace, also just a different level of re- resonance in our life with other others that are around us. Uh, Keo, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's great talking with you. How do we do it? So you're standing on the corner with somebody. You Do you just intentionally try to get their eye contact? Um, what do you do? Well, I do, but uh, but let me back up just a little bit. One of the really wonderful things is we actually all operate by some basic unwritten rules um, about what's okay and how it works. And those rules change from place to place and culture to culture, but the basic mechanics are always the same. So how do you start a conversation? How do you create an opening for connection at all? How do you conduct a conversation? What's okay to talk about and what isn't? Um, what you know? How you get out of a conversation? And if you start to break it down and really observe people around you and observe yourself, you'll you'll learn a lot about how it works. There's a there's a great deal about this in the book. Um, but in terms of you know, for me as a pretty experienced practitioner of this, I do generally try to look someone in the eye and see if they return that. I often just say hello to people I pass by. I mean, New York is a very pedestrian city, so I walk by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I will say hello when I pass them. Some people ignore me. I I have to have a little bit of a thick skin for when it doesn't go exactly the way that I want it to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Some people are surprised when I say hello to them. You know, some people say hello back. Some people slow down and chat with me for a moment. So one of the great things about doing this as a pedestrian is if it doesn't work out the way you want it to, you can keep going. You're not really imposing on anyone, you know, even if they do respond to you because you just you both keep going. It's not necessarily about provoking a long, deep conversation. It's about these moments with people that you'll never meet again. Yeah, I. it's funny because I come from, you know, Utah, Salt Lake City, smallish town or smaller town. And uh, I've been to New York many times. And I, I I do this more around my town, but I sometimes feel like New Yorkers just won't tolerate it. They won't take it. But do, do you see that they respond? Yeah. You know, it's really funny. Some people say, oh, my gosh, everyone in New York is friendly. And other people say, Nobody talks to me in New York, and I have yet to understand why people have such a different experience. Mm. It may have to do with the particular places that you are. The more kind of busy and in a hurry and purpose-driven people are in their experiences in public space, the less they talk to each other, the less interested they are, Um, the more it's going to be just like, you know, why are you talking to me? Go away. (laughs) Um, If you're in a residential neighborhood, it's a really different feeling. Um, New Yorkers are somewhat resentful of tourists in certain parts of town because tourists are quite reasonably moving slow, looking around them, doing exactly what you should do when you're visiting a new place. 
And the people who work in that area are just trying to get where they're going in a hurry. So that's like Midtown, where the Empire State Building and Rockefeller Center are, not the best place to try to talk to strangers. Right. <laughs> yeah, you kind of got to know, you know, you got to know what's going on. Um, talk about uh, how it's how it's actually impacted you. Have you have you had friendships? Have you made friendships and and connections? What what have you seen happen by just connecting with people more? It's so interesting. I. For me, there's really two different kinds of these interactions. And when I talk about this, when um, everything the book is about has really nothing to do with making friends. It's very much about these moment-to-moment experiences that, are, that enrich you, that um, it, you know, increase our ability to understand people and our curiosity about people. In terms of making friends, a lot of the techniques, there's a series of techniques in the book, a lot of those can be used in situations where you're more trying to make friends and that's your goal because the whole goal of any of this, once you've gotten past just saying hello to someone, is to get to something real with them, to not talk about the weather, but to, to ask questions that can lead them to give them an opportunity, to give them space, to give them enough trust, to tell you something that's real about themselves, even if it's... For me, I don't ask people what they do for a living. I ask them what they did today. Hmm. That will probably include what they did for a living, but it'll also be very specific to them as a person. So it's not, I work at a call center. It's, well, I talk to people all day um, and help them solve their problems. And, you know, today, wow, this woman was so nice to me. Or today, Somebody got really angry at me, and it was hard to handle, and I'm still thinking about it. You want to give people the opportunity to, to actually tell you something real. Right. And what, what, what have you – anything surprising, anything where someone's opened oh, yeah, up to sorry, you? I, I forgot the second half of your question. That's all right. So one thing that I have noticed is that I have made friends with many more strangers online than I ever have from these brief interactions in person. Hmm. The, the brief interactions, unless they're with a neighbor, don't really end up going towards friendships or any, you know, wild benefits to my life. Yeah. Um, but I, I've been in online communities for a long time. So, for example, there's a photo-sharing community called Flickr yeah. that has been really eclipsed by Instagram. But for, for probably almost a decade, that was where people were sharing photographs. And... I would get into conversations on the comments on my own photos, or if I commented on a photo by a friend, their mutual friend might ask me a question. And you would sort of get into these exchanges and get to know the person much better. And then I met people who I had those connections to and were very good friends to this day. Huh. I guess because they can always come back to you, right? They, they have a place, that, kind of a placeholder for you. And also, by the time you ever met them in person, you've really gotten to know them pretty well. In this case, let's say you've looked at their photographs, you've had conversations with them, you know some of the things that are meaningful to them, you might know some of the things that bother them, um, but you really understand who they are a little bit more. Mm. And you have the... It's not as easy now. There, there's a lot more contentiousness online, and there's less fluidity with 
um, having a conversation and exchange with someone you don't know. Right. But when you're in a community online that has that, you really have a chance to slowly over time get to know someone the same way you would in a physical space, hmm. slowly get to know them. What do you think would happen long term as we as we wrap this up if if everybody could could get better at applying this principle of just connecting, trying to cl- create some of those fleeting intimate moments, what would what would it do? Well, this this may sound a little bit sort of fruity, but sometimes the true things do sound that way. Mm-hmm. I think everybody would be a lot happier on on in a generalized sense. I think that when you go around the world and have or, or you know the world meaning your life and you have nice interactions with people you're passing by, you have a lot of good feeling and sort of fellow feeling and you come home in a better mood. I also think that you have an opportunity to connect even briefly with people who are different than you. And the more we do that, the more we understand what it's like to be someone who's different, the more we have good feelings about people who are different. And that really generalizes. If you have a good interaction with someone who is quite different from you, you sort of associate that, you generalize it to all the people who you think are like that person. Mm. Um, so we need a lot more of that. Oh, I totally agree. Keo Stark, well done. Uh, thanks for introducing us to the strangers around us. The name of the book is When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. You can also find out more information about Keo at her website, keostark.com, K-I-O-Stark.com. Interesting, folks. There's a lot of light in everybody on this earth, and if we could tune into it, it might fill up our buckets. We'll be back. Continue the discussion. We'll be talking reality television up next. Welcome back, friends. You know, whether you like it or not, we have all caught ourselves at one time or another watching what society has uh, deemed as reality TV. There may even be times when we've caught ourselves or our friends talking about these shows after the show is over. So what is it about reality TV that fascinates us so much? Here to talk more about the media phenomenon is our own very own friend and uh, wonderful producer, Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin! So, uh, are you a big reality TV fan? Well, yes. This is see. This is kind of what sparked my interest in it. Okay. Last Sunday over the weekend, I was watching the Emmys. Okay, yeah. And they brought back this year the category for reality TV competition show. Okay. And they awarded the best like competition. See, that's got to drive the rest of the Emmy people crazy, right? Because it's it got it, it gets it, rid of writers, it gets rid of actors, it gets rid of all of these people. Yeah, and I mean they're creating these really good stories, but then I like I started thinking about it and I was like that's probably my favorite one. That was my favorite award of the night. Was it really? <laughs> it was cuz the voice won. The, did it? Yeah, that's my favorite. It's my favorite reality competition show. You know, so, I, that's that's interesting. what that's what made me, but then I started thinking, you know, let's talk to Matt. You know, Matt's a doctor. Let's yeah, do some research. Why are we so fascinated? By reality TV. It's obvious. It's it's called um, the, what's his name? Hung. 
It's the hung phenomenon. It's Donald the, Hung. Is it uh, uh, William Hung? William <laughs> Hung phenomenon. He's the guy that was on. Um, what, which one was it? It was American uh, Idol. Yeah, and he has a horrible voice. He's not a great singer. Mm-hmm. And right then, I realized, oh, I'm better than him. Right. Actually, that's what that's they said. That's the problem. There's the shallowness of yeah, I we found, like it because we're better than some of these people. I found people. this Psychology Today article where they had a obviously a psychologist that was talking about it. And she says, the growing fascination with reality television stems from our desire to fantasize about the prospect of easily acquired fame. Hmm. One, we see seemingly regular people doing regular people things, and we think to ourselves that we too are regular people who do regular things. <laughs> we could be famous too. Oh, kind so, of a big deal. Like, kind of a big deal. But it is. Then we also have this – they talk about a social comparison theory where we might feel worse after watching reality television, citing our less than superhuman ability to find solutions to problems in the time left over. But we also might feel better oh, about yeah. ourselves because we say, wow, we are more talented than these mm-hmm. people. You know, like I can do good things yeah. too. Yeah. I, I mean like I, I watched – the Bachelor, uh, I, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I can never watch an entire show, an entire series. So I watched one episode and I thought, ah, oh, geez, I need to get me some abs. <laughs> then I thought by the end of the show, I don't need abs if I'm going to be as dumb as these guys. You know what? It's I a actually, weird thing. I have a tiny clip of that. Do you? Bachelorette intro. Let's listen to Let's it. Let's do it. Coming up this season on The Bachelorette. This honestly is a dream come true. I'm ready to open my heart up again. I'm ready to fall in love. I felt that connection with JoJo right away. <laughs> JoJo. Really JoJo. She I'm was ready find to love find love. love. Ready to find love. She wanted love. And don't we all want to find love? Yeah, but is that how you do it? I mean, probably not, but it works men for her. Get she's out of the limousine. En- she's still engaged. That's called looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, I think Willie Nelson's saying they, that. I so. mean... It's just funny to me how we watch these shows. And actually, reality TV is not that old. No. The first reality quote-unquote TV show aired in 1983 on HBO. It was called An American Family Revisited. Huh. It was about the Louds, the Loud family. The series inspired the MTV reality t- television series The Real World. Yeah, right. Did you? I mean, yeah, real we've world. all seen that. Yeah, that was the first train wreck. And then in 2003, PBS broadcasted the show Lance Loud, A Death in an American Family. Hmm. Visiting the family again at the invitation of Lance before his death. So going back to the HBO broadcast. Oh wow! I, See, I mean, I haven't, I haven't. Yeah, that was that predates you. But <laughs> I, I remember the HBO, the other one. The um, an American Family. No, the other one that. Uh, or the Real World. The Real World. Oh, the MTV. Yeah. Oh, the MTV. Sorry, and then so. But, but this was the beginning, and really, it, it, back in the day, it made so many people frustrated and angry because these aren't actors. There's no writers that have to write the script. So all of Hollywood is being unemployed. Ability. Right. And you didn't have to pay them as much because the people just wanted fame. Right. Notoriety and or something. And most some... of them, instead of getting – I mean they get paid a little bit, but they're yeah. getting money in advertisement, sponsors. Yeah. You know, companies that say, hey, especially now with social media, reality TV is huge. Yeah. You know, they say, hey, JoJo, you're famous. Put my sunglasses on and take a photo and put it on your Instagram and you'll get free sunglasses for the rest of your life. <sighs> Is there really a JoJo? That's her name. Oh. She was the Bachelorette last season, oh. JoJo. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, was we she a even... monkey? <laughs> no. It sure wasn't Jar Jar? Jar Jar. Not Jar Jar Binks, no. Oh, okay. We couldn't stand a whole season of him so talking. JoJo. About JoJo. But I mean, reality TV, 
for heaven's sakes, was the birthplace of our presidential candidate, Donald Trump. Uh, we love reality t- TV so much, we voted in a reality TV star. I know. Don't bring that up. In fact, the Kardashians' fame has stayed relevant uh, because of their show, Keeping uh, Up with the Kardashians. Uh, but, I mean, positive things, too. Numerous stars like David Archuleta, Carrie Underwood, and Kelly Clarkson all, their, all got their beginnings on American Idol. I know, but see, that's – I mean, those are great people. The, I think it's different in music because you have to deliver. Right. Well, right? But like Snooki didn't deliver anything. No, except she just entertained us. Chaos, she just made disorder, that social comparison disease. Theory. We just felt better about our life because we weren't as bad as. So what it is, we get into it. Jersey Shore. Yeah. Like there's some shows I can't watch. I can't watch Which the ones? Kardashians. I can't, I can't watch it. What is it, Matt? What bothers you? First of all, it's I see clients all day. The last thing I need is another client. Is a whole family of clients, <laughs> and yet they reach this level of notoriety and fame. And but is it redeeming? I guess is my right. issue. Does it hmm. do do they do the stories make us better, or is it just more about competition and? Well, that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, my, I love the voice. That's the one that I started. Yeah, again, with. I, I like the musical and, ones because you gotta even Dancing with the Stars. I get because who that doesn't want to see performing right. something? But like the voice is fun because I think the reason it's become so popular is the first real singing show we had was American Idol, which was fun to watch. But we had a lot of kind of negative. We'd point. We made fun of a lot of people. Right. We would put people on there mm-hmm. that we could laugh at. Simon Cowell had a reputation yeah. for being a meanie. Beating people. The up. voice is a little bit different. They still compete. The judges, but they're not quite as mean. If you want to listen to this clip, I mean, this is kind of what you're getting. You may be wondering how I can help you, uh, but I do have Blake some. Shelton. I'm wondering how you can help. You I too. do have some serious connections in that reggae ska world these days. Blake I like it. To help you with, really? I'm just saying. Yeah. Yes. Really. really. Yes. You're going to do really. that. Here we go. Adam Levine. <laughs> See, I guess that's the issue is that then – I mean that's a friendly competition, but the person still that is singing has to deliver the goods. That's what's cool about it is it's it's giving some people notoriety. Right. I mean – But others like – Support it, but remember that it's not real. Remember that your life is still good. That's what we're here to talk about. It's not just about other names like Polly D, Jay Wow, Sweetheart, The Situation. Honey yeah. Boo Boo. The Amazing Honey Race. Boo Boo. <laughs> American Ninja Warrior. Okay, we're out. Hour number two is done. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them, I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. 
Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Ah, such an interesting world we live in, isn't it? Again, we go to space. As Joe was teaching us, you know, what was it, 46 years ago today? They landed on the moon. I mean, that's pretty cool. 46 years ago, we landed on the moon, and, uh, you know, a couple, a week ago, we, we flew a, a probe all the way to Pluto. Crazy advancements in technology, and yet, little basic things we still can't figure out. How to get Republicans and Democrats to talk? That's a lot harder. Maybe what we ought to do is put them on a probe and send them out to Pluto. <laughs> And just tell them, you're not coming back. You're not coming back until you can make nice and be friends. But uh, interesting thing, one um, study that just came out, the scientists say uh, the longer that people are in space, their their skin thins. It's scary. Uh, according to a study I found on uh, yahoonews.com, Astronaut skin gets thinner in space, scientists says. A long-awaited human mission to the red planet is still a number of years away, going to, going to Mars, for example, because it would take, it would take uh, at least a half a year of space travel just to get to Mars. The problem, though, based on using advanced imaging technology, they're starting to find out that the longer the astronauts are up there, their skin thins. So by the time they get back, it, they'd be a mess. So talk about thin-skinned. I don't know what it is, but those astronauts are sure thin-skinned. Isn't that crazy? So we may not be able to actually send people to, uh, you know, to Mars because when they come back, they might you know, just have a really thin layer of skin. 
It's crazy. But it's just an advancement. We'll fix that. If we could figure out how to make people more thick-skinned, we would not only get people to Mars, we'd probably fix politics. What would happen in your life if you know, somebody that offended you couldn't offend you because you could handle it? It's crazy, the advancements, and uh, just the little things we have to overcome. But we can do it. We'll figure it out. Another crazy study I heard or I just saw recently blew my mind. Doctors save a man's hand by grafting it onto his leg for a month. Isn't that crazy? The surgery was carried on a factory worker known as Zhu at, uh, at a hospital in um, Changsha in, in China, the capital of Hunan province in central China. Zhu had his left hand chopped off during a work accident involving a spinning blade machine and was rushed to the hospital where Dr. Tang Juyu, head of microsurgery at the hospital, decided to operate to give him a chance to revive his lost hand. The surgical team were unable to reattach the hand to Zhu's arm straight away as the man had severed nerves and tendons that they needed uh, to make sure were healed before they did the surgery. So instead of, you know, you got to somehow keep the hand alive. So they they took the hand and they sewed it onto his leg. So, you know, this Zhu guy is now walking around with his hand. This is actually past. For a month he walked around. I don't know if he was walking. But he had his foot and his hand attached down by the ankle. The, the picture of it, seriously ugly. But it kept the blood flow and normal temperatures into the hand, kept the blood flowing to the hand, you know, all within 10 hours of the, of the tragedy. Crazy. And, uh, you know, instead of tossing the hand, which we would have done years ago, now we keep the hand alive. And it looks like in in a while, in a in two or three weeks, they're going to try to reattach that bad boy. And what do you do, <laughs> Dad? What's on your leg? Just my hand, son. Ooh, just be quiet, son. Again, we can save a person's hand. Think back in the days. How many hands were amputated? Feet were amputated. We're advancing. Life is. You're living at a time where we can keep stuff happening that never could have happened years ago. That's cool. It's a cool time to live, don't you think? Ben's mesmerized. Ben, it's, <laughs> he just gave me a high five. Um, anyway, crazy stuff. So sure, the moon's hard. And we celebrate 46 years. And it's cool to go to Pluto. Even if our skin may thin, we may not be able to go to Mars. Or somebody will. I'd go find the thickest skinned person you know and send them to Mars. And they're still making huge advancements and saving hands that we normally would have lost. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under. Right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. 
You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and then I got to pray. And Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's, it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could, I mean, I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do, to have a conversation, even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do? Just not talk? Well, no, but go learn. How to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if, if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you don't skin, have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay. There's, but then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it. I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read. We, we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw him out. She broke her. She about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this, lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters, but then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. 
And growing. <laughs> and growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? One thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your, what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm going to let it go and turn into a horrible, evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um, – what would you say is your worst habit uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard. I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You got to hire me. Anyway – let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the world today, it's hard, if not impossible, to avoid advertising. Everything from the latest and greatest technology to the newest trend in fashion gets thrown into the face of society daily. Advertisements for alcohol companies are no different, and those ads have uh, are having quite an impact, especially among youth and teenagers. Dr. Timothy Naimi is an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health and researches the effects of advertising on underage drinking. He joins us here today with some uh, some added insight into some of his research. Dr. Naimi, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. You call, please call me Tim. You bet, Tim. This is this is uh, this is huge. I have six kids, and in fact, when I was uh, reading your article, I, I was thinking the entire time um, about my children and the impact of this. Talk to us about the impact of advertising on our kids. It's 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 greater than we think. Well, you know, Matt. In general, we know that that advertising works, right? So, right. That that I mean. But you know how sometimes we, we are when we come to these things, we have to do research to prove what, what we already know, <laughs> if you know what I mean? Because, because for, even though advertising is, is very, very you know, effective and um, alcohol companies spend many billions of dollars a year on alcohol advertising, um, for a long time there's been this idea that, oh, no, no, I mean al- alcohol advertising really shouldn't be regulated because it really doesn't doesn't uh, influence whether or not, you know, kids drink or, or how much they drink. And so I think over the past, you know, decade in particular, we've learned a lot more um, about, about that. And I think um, uh, 
members of our research team as well as other research teams have done a really good job showing that, that advertising definitely influences which brands kids drink. Now, of course, a lot of times when kids drink, they drink whatever is available to them, but mm-hmm. actually they have a surprising amount of discretion. They often will purchase it from buyers who are of age. So, they, so, but, so on average, when you look at how much advertising for a particular brand a kid is exposed to, that pretty, pretty strongly correlates which, with which brands they tend to drink. So it's it's about brands, um, but I guess one of the things that we ought to make sure we get out there: drinking yeah. for kids overall is going down. Is that right? Drinking for kids overall has gone down somewhat over the past decade. Correct? Okay, but correct. you are but it's finding. Still, it's, oh, go ahead. It's still, it's still the the most common um, uh, drug used by kids. Still, way more than uh, marijuana, and um, it still uh, kills. Uh, over 5,000 kids each year, and alcohol is still the leading risk factor for the three leading causes of death among adolescents, those being car crashes, suicides, and homicides. Alcohol is a strong risk factor for mm. all of those. So I think the, the main message actually is that youth drinking remains common. It has declined uh, somewhat over the past uh, 10 or 15 years, but, but um, I wouldn't say it's dramatic. Right. And also, I guess, that the the advertising to our children, it does work, and it does work uh, specifically on which brands they're most likely to choose if they can choose. Exactly. I mean, so I think one thing that people be interested in is, um, you know, advertising is very much a brand-specific phenomenon. So when it comes to alcohol, you know, companies aren't advertising for, you know, drink alcohol. They're not even advertising drink beer. They're advertising drink Bud Light. Mm. Or drink Dos Equis, and you'll be like a really cool guy who has lots of women hanging off of him. Or mm-hmm. they'll so it's very much of a brand-level phenomenon. And one of the things that's important to do in your research is when you look at the advertising is try to link advertising for specific brands to consumption of specific brands. Now, what our recent study that's, um, that, that came out and that's gotten a lot of press attention is that we went, you know, we went a step further. So we were still looking at the amount of, adverti- of advertising for specific brands. But what we did is we added up all that advertising for all those specific brands. And then we related that to how much aggregated consumption of all those specific brands were there. So in other words, what we're trying to get at is not simply whether or not the advertising affects which brands kids drink, but whether it affects how much kids drink because at the end of the day that's you know arguably what we most care about mm-hmm. is a whether they start to drink this study was not about that or how much they drink in total and what, in fact we yeah what did you find out in, we found that in fact that there was a very strong relationship that for example kids who this is a study of um the 20 most popular non-sports television shows um and and, and there's 61 um, alcohol brands advertised on those shows, accounting for about half of all consumption. And basically, kids who were exposed to no advertising for any of those 61 brands on average drank about 14 drinks per month, whereas kids who were exposed to sort of an average amount of advertising drank like 33 drinks a month. So, for you know, it um, so there's a hmm. sort of a strong relationship there, but that's just some sort of sample numbers to give you an idea of 
of the differences. Interesting. Now, another thing, Matt, that's important to do is you can say, well, and this is very true, actually, you can say, well, kids who watch more advertising might be also likely to, to do other things that are related to drinking more. You know, they may be more risk takers. They uh-huh. may be less, you know, maybe spending less time on studying and more time, you know, watching TV and playing video games or whatever. And so we, we are very careful to try to, to account for that. And the other thing is, you know, because we didn't study every single brand, what we also did was statistically account for how much of the other brands that they consume, the non-advertised brands. And that was really important because that enables you to, to sort of address any differences that there might be with respect to alcohol consumption, their tendency to drink alcohol in general, mm-hmm. try to distill out, if we will, the effect <laughs> of the advertising. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a fascinating study. So you found overall those that were advertised to were having, the kids were having an average of 33 drinks a month. Those that weren't advertised. Yeah, who, who, who experienced about an average amount of advertising. Okay, average I would say amount. that you had, if, again, for people who saw zero or, or, or very little advertising, they drank on average about 14 drinks a month. Now, this is a national sample, so I know in some places like Utah yeah. it would be less, and it's also a sample of underage drinkers, you know, about half or a little less of kids in high school are drink alcohol on, a, on at least on a monthly basis. Hmm. Um, so so if, you, if you sort of cut it up for each, you know, sort of 10 or 20 percent difference in advertising, it corresponded to about six more drinks per month. And then at even higher levels, though, that amount of increase in advertising resulted in even larger jumps up in how many drinks they, they had per month. Hmm. So, so anyways, if you, I mean, it's hard to um, sort of give, give a specific example, but, but if you, if you were to divide reach 10 or 20% increase in advertising, it's about, you know, sort of six to 10 drinks more consumed each month. And it, it just an interesting fact you brought up there that I, I was always assuming this was, you know, Miller Lite commercials, um, in the middle of a football game, but this is also just people mentioning a brand of, Vodka in the middle of a show, a television show. Well, no, this is actually advertising. Advertising, okay. This is actually these are actually based on advertising, yeah. not product placements or mentions, okay. or, you know, depictions of that type of thing. Is is so, it, it? What do you ahead, think? Sorry. What 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 surprised you as you went through this, Tim? I mean, you've been at this a long time. You've researched it every way you can research it. What stands out as worrisome to you? Well, I think. I think the the issue is that the, it, over time, what we're finding out is that advertising doesn't just impact what kids are drinking, but it impacts uh, how much they drink. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of prompts us to really look at how do we regulate, how is alcohol advertising regulated in our country or our state? And I don't know um, if many of your listeners are, would be familiar with that, but... Um, Essentially, there is no, you know, any regulation of alcohol advertising is, it's entirely what they call self-regulatory, meaning that the industry basically gets to decide how much regulation there is. Uh And I often joke that, you know, self-regulation is sort of an oxymoronic term, right? Because, (laughs) you know, the idea of regulation is like, I'm a big guy, I love to eat, right? You know, 
if I if my wife tries to regulate my food, well, she said, well, I'll just let you self-regulate. Well, clearly that's not really regulation because regulation yeah. is occasionally doing stuff you don't want to do. So we really have no system of of control of alcohol advertising. I mean, the industry, alcohol industries representing beer, wine, and distilled spirits have some voluntary guidelines in place, but they're quite liberal. In other words, they pledge, for example, on television not to put alcohol ads on programs in which underage viewers exceed the number of of age viewers by more than a two-to-one ratio. So that means there'd have to be twice as many, you know, underage people watching mm-hmm. for their for their amount in the population. So that that you know prevents them from, or the you know, advertising on very very small numbers of shows. And there's no restrictions, for example, on advertising on television programs that have massive youth audiences, but that where they may not be sort of disproportionately overrepresentative. Things like the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. the NCAA tournament. You know, the point is lots of kids watch that, but also lots of adults watch it. So they can essentially deliver all the gross tonnage of advertising that, that they desire to any population group. Right. Well, and I guess it's like, I mean, it makes sense. You shouldn't be advertising on Disney Channel kind of thing. But my kids love a show like The Office. Mm-hmm. And my teenage kids would and do. And so all of a sudden they could be deeply impacted by watching advertising on The Office about drinking. Yeah. Yeah. And so cable TV is um, – yeah, the, all those kinds of um, shows exactly. And again, um, the the age that your kids are at are sort of the age when, when kids – you know, most, most kids who start to drink start, you know, somewhere between 13 and 15 or 16. Yeah, yeah. So – they're not, you know, a lot, a lot of them aren't watching the, the Disney Channel anymore. No. So, <laughs> well, Tim, so let's take a break. We'll come back. Yeah. I want to continue the discussion and uh, learn from you more about your research. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Timothy Naimi, and he is an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health. Underage drinking, folks, and uh, he's giving us more information about alcohol consumption and advertising, the correlation between the two. Stick with us, helping you live longer and and create healthier relationships and lives with your kids. We'll be back. By what name are you known? There are some who call me... Tim. <laughs> Welcome back, friends. Uh, a little shout out right there to our guest, uh, Dr. Timothy Namey. Uh, Tim is a, an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health and researches the effects of advertising on underage drinking. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. You're so welcome. We just did a little Monty Python tribute to you. Thank you. I loved it. You bet. Awesome. Hey, uh, this. Okay, so let me get this straight. You're finding out more and more, and I mean through your research, we've we've kind of distinguished that advertising works. Uh, children mm-hmm. or kids that are watching advertising are more likely. It's more likely to impact what brand they choose if they get to choose. Sometimes they just got to take what comes. And yeah. when they choose, you're saying every ten percent increase in advertising that that our teens and and youth see 
in, mm-hmm. uh, re- re- basically reflects about a six drinks per ten percent per month per month increase increase yeah, yeah. wow so and the reason we want to be on this and on top of this is because uh, you know drinking teen underage drinking um, also correlates with the three biggest ways and reasons kids are dying automobile yeah, accidents suicide homicide yeah okay so correct um when we when we look at this one of the things i was thinking is is it these kids that are maybe watching more television is it because uh, is did you were you able to figure out is it because their parents are less involved it seems like if a parent wasn't there um, yeah. A child might watch more TV. So these are kids that are – it's not just the TV. It's the involvement of p- parents. Well, that's why I think it's important to account for – like in our study, we also control for how much total TV time kids watch, whether their parents – they report that their parents you know, control what they watch. There are a lot of factors, and that's why we also control for the amount of non-advertised alcohol they drink to try to take care of all these factors. But I think you're getting at a – at a really important point, which is a bit beyond the scope of the study, but in terms of the broader context of things is like, I mean, to me, it sort of begs the question, what, what can we do? We know that there's not, um, that the, the industry is self-regulatory and, and doesn't really um, put tight constraints on what, what it does. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, which is charged for sort of overseeing whether they're complying with their own standards, you know, has trouble sort of keeping up with things. So I guess the point is, is like, what, what kind of things can, can, you know, listeners do, can parents do? And, and I think, um, so some of those things, your, your question sort of gets at, you know, which is like, maybe watch less television, spend less time in front of a screen. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in general, um, you know, more screen time, more TV watching is correlated with lots of bad things. Now it's not necessarily all because of the TV itself, right? I mean, but again, the point is that the more engaged kids are with other activities, with sports, with, you know, reading or studying or, you know, building, you know, kites or doing whatever they do, um, you know, they're just more, they're, you know, in some ways you could argue sort of fuller lives and less um, less bandwidth available for uh, <laughs> right. doing doing things that may get them into trouble. And that's not just for drinking, but just sort of lots of lots of areas so i think that's um i think limiting screen time is a great uh you know it's recommended and it's um you know it's a good idea it's not always possible you know some kids don't have you know it's it's, uh an issue of supervision and well there's a lot of factors that go into right do you do you notice a difference in um i guess types of screen use and advertising and its impact um whether they're playing video games I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of advertising on yeah. video games um, and vice versa. I don't know if there's yeah, Netflix great, great and all these other things. It's beyond my um, my sort of scope of of interest. But I'll tell you that one that I think the television, I mean, if you wanted to. So, so there's sort of network television, there's cable television, and there's sort of been the big increases in alcohol advertising over the past decade have been on um, cable television. And then there's another big area where there's just been an explosion of alcohol marketing, um, and it's really hard to track, uh, and and even more difficult to regulate, which is the which is the web. So again, because there, there's essentially 
no no way you can uh, track people's very hard to restrict on the basis of age, right? Some, right. some alcohol websites you go to or, um, will have a thing where you have to put in your birthday or something, but it's very easy to, obviously. So, and, and there's really no regulatory framework around uh, the Internet. And then there's lots of social media stuff, too, where it may not even be apparent that it's advertising, right? So, I mean, there's all these sort of, uh, again, I'm not an expert in this, but social media marketing thing where, where you'll have these interest groups or whatever or pop up where there are you know, people will be mentioning specific brands and it's actually part of, um, it, it may not even be apparent that it's, that it's advertising. So what we know is that there's a lot more alcohol advertising of various types uh, on the Internet and social media. Um, and again, so I think uh, it's not just television. It's also, hmm. it's also the Internet and other electronic forms of uh, communication and mass communication. In your research, do you sense, um, uh, talk about teens and, and what you're learning about teenagers, uh, their ability to make decisions um, versus just an adult. Does advertising of alcohol impact teens differently than adults? Well, I think in general, the, 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 the ideas operate the same way. I mean, they're ch- the idea is to influence people's, there are a lot of things that advertising does, but it sort of influences people's, they call it expectancies. You know, in other words, if you come to associate a particular product with, and that could be alcohol or anything else, with, with some desirable outcome, right, then that's, that's something that you want, then that's influencing, so subconsciously or consciously, um, if one comes to associate a brand of alcohol with like hooking up at a party with a cute member of the opposite sex or or, you know, being successful, you know, financially or having a good job or, you know, who knows? All those things, that's what it's, that's what it's basically designed to do. So some of the influence is more at the subconscious level, and then there's other sort of um, direct ways to do it. Um, e- even, the, even the means of which advertising happens, if it's using humor or things with sort of emotions that we feel positively about, you know, even though we... You know, alcohol kills about 100,000 Americans each and every year in the United States. If we think of beer advertising and think, oh, it's funny, there's like a frog or there's people, you know, making funny jokes, you know, um, we we sort of it it makes it difficult for us to properly contextualize the, the, the risks or potential benefits of a product. Right. So I don't know if that's a very good answer. No, that's, question, no, that's but, good. And Tim, do you. Um so if there's parents out there and they, they really just want to do more, I guess the obvious is decrease the messages, <laughs> the the screen time and uh, cable time, television time. What else have you yeah. learned in your research that parents can do to to, to be a better, you know, a, a better well, source think, and guide I mean, I on in this? Term, yeah, sure. In terms of, you know, the, well, first of all, I put this into the, a broader context, which is that as a country – um, listen, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I live in Massachusetts, but that doesn't mean I'm, uh, I understand people don't like regulation and I think, but I think for dangerous products or potentially dangerous projects that, that regulation is, is justified. And even, you know, libertarian would say that when, when, it, when a product has a chance to cause harms to, to others, that that's an appropriate place for regulation. So I think if you, if you look at the main ways, how do we limit the harms and the misery that, that alcohol causes um, 
in our states and countries and communities. What we need is not to make it illegal, but to appropriately regulate it. In most states, if you put, um, you know, sort of limits on advertising are very much like things like other important policies, like how much do we tax alcohol? How many, you know, outlets do we allow to sell alcohol? And at what hours of the day and night do we think that's a good idea? Do we allow bars to have sort of unfettered happy hours or like all you can drink specials for $5? These are kind of how it fits into the broader network of alcohol policies. And I think in general, those are very, very important. Hmm. And then in terms of the you know, the parents, I think the, the, the limiting screen time is important. But the most important thing that a parent can do in terms of um, how their kids, for example, might drink is, is modeling, um, you know, modeling, if, if they drink, is modeling sort of good drinking behavior. So um, it, it is, you know, it, it, if, if, if parents drink, that again, uh, drinking to get drunk or, or drinking too much has a much more powerful influence on whether their kids are likely to do the same thing compared to whatever they say. So it's sort of uh, do, do as I do as do. I say, not as I do doesn't, yeah. doesn't work too well. So I think I think modeling good behavior around alcohol and sort of, um, you know, the proper social context for those right. who drink. I think that's the key. Well, and I mean, these kids today, I guess, because of the technology and their um, their access to so much more information, they're smart. These are smart kids, smarter than right. I, I think I ever was. At yeah, that age, for sure, for sure. So they, so they see through, they they see through, um, you know, parents who may be saying one thing and doing another. Right. So, right. Um, so I think again, sort of modeling good behavior, and for, again, for parents who drink, that sort of alcohol, even if they're not drunk, but doesn't become sort of the, you know, they see it as sort of the center of their social life. Then I think that conveys messages. So I think um, I have nothing against drinking and I think uh, drinking can be enjoyed and is enjoyed by many people and many people do so in a sort of a low risk manner but I think that um, unfortunately a lot of people who drink uh, are not necessarily alcoholic but they drink in ways that are not healthy and, and not sort of um, things that we want to pass on to our kids. Right. So. right. Dr. Tim Naimi, thank you so much for your insights and your great work there and for really gaining the information we need and disseminating it so we can have healthier lives with our own children. Folks, it's, uh, there's, there's also ways, there's other ways to deal with the difficulties of life. And I'm not sure kids always are drinking just to be social. Sometimes they're drinking to medicate as well, and that creates bigger problems. We will be back, folks. We'll take a break, continue the discussion, and uh, take a little further. We're going to talk about left-handed people up next with Leanna Tan. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, parents, you, you didn't just have these kids and then hope that they're going to grow up great. you got to be there. Walk them, guide them. And alcohol use is one thing you could be guiding them on. Another, though, is, uh, is something they may have been born with, according to our next, uh, our next piece. What do Barack Obama, Richard Simmons, Oprah Winfrey, and Jack the Ripper have in common? They were all left-handed. 
Did you know that only 12% of the world's population is left-handed? You might be left-handed yourself, but you might uh, also, you know, know people around the country and the world who have this wonderful gift. So today we have our producer, Leanna Tan. She's going to explain to us this rare phenomenon and how uh, some of the interesting quirks that might be coming from it. So the other day I was typing when suddenly I got this stabbing pain in my wrist. And then I couldn't write or lift my book or even turn a handle. You can't hurt me. But then for the rest of the day, I entered into a whole new world of left-handedness. Yes. And my friend said that it was much better being left-handed than right-handed. So then it got me wondering if maybe there is a whole perspective of life I've been missing out on. I can show you the world. After doing a little research, I discovered we have superhumans lurking in our midst, people. Other kids don't have superpowers. I had to find one and bring them in for investigation. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. All right, I have brought in a live specimen of left very own Landon Moore. My first question. This is a sample IQ test question I found. Wait, are you serious? Book is to reading as fork is to A, drawing, B, writing, C, stirring, D, eating. Eating. What? Oh my gosh, he's a genius. You're really smart. It's true. So, anythinglefthanded.co.uk, that website I found, says that lefties have a greater chance of being a genius or having a high IQ. I'd say that's true. I can handle things! I'm smart! Well, okay, I gotta see if you have more of these superpowers. Okay. Do you like swimming? Yeah, I do. All right, have you ever opened your eyes underwater? Yes. Can you please explain that experience to me? It's kind of painful. You get chlorine in your eyes. I don't know, you can't, you can't see very well. So you were blind? You couldn't see anything? Heart, you could hardly see anything. All right, this is false. I knew this was false. What does it say? Um, it says that left-handed people adjust more easily to seeing underwater. False! What were we doing exactly five months and 20 days ago at approximately 9 p.m.? April 2nd. They're good at math, too, I guess. The day before your birthday. Wow. Which means, didn't you have a birthday party the day before your birthday? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You remembered. Love a love a dub dub. You did, didn't you? Yes. You did. Wow, this is true. It says that some left-handed individuals have better memories. But then again, how could you forget that event? So It was a great birthday party. I have been told my whole life that I have a really good memory. Like, I remember things from, like, my earliest memory is when I was three and I got locked in a porta potty while we were camping as a family. I think it's because you were traumatized. But it also says that um, your family will have, like your kids, they'll have better memories. I hope so. I need to ask you a personal question. Not the first time. What was your score on your driver's test? Could you take the car to neutral? We just got passed by a street sweeper. Like in points? Yeah. I don't know. I got my you don't li- remember? I got my license. I know I got my license. How many accidents have you been in? I've never been in an accident while I was actually in a car. Oh, yeah, you got ran over by one. <laughs> I didn't get run over. I got hit by a car. Say what? Interesting, because that, it says that left-handed people tend to be the target of right-handed people anger. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. No, but it says that you're more successful at learning to drive than right-handed people, but I don't think that's true either. I'd say, I would say I'm a good driver, and I've never been in an accident. If you had $1 million, what would you do with it? I would probably 
save a lot of it, slash invest a lot of it. But I think that you should like donate it to a charity. And a, a charity built for right-handed people. Because this says that left-handed males who have gone to college earn 13% more than their right-handed counterparts. Really? If I had a million dollars... So I'm right-handed, and I'm going to set up a charity funded <laughs> by you to donate to right-handed people who struggle through college anyway and still get 13% less just because they were born right-handed. What discrimination? This is so unfair! I'll give you like a nickel or something. And left-handed people are also miserly people. Maybe. I just want to say, Landon, that I am so honored to be your friend. And don't forget to donate to my right-handed charity. Left-handed ledges. Now I can ride all the way to the edge. All right, so I guess I'm not missing out on too much, except specialty scissors and exclusive emails from this website. But... I am currently working on my ambidexterity, so I can become a superhuman driver, genius, and filthy rich miser. So don't worry, all you lefties out there who thought you were excluded and dejected from society. We recognize your powers and accept you for who you are. And Ned Flanders, the richest left-handed man in town. And I'll accept any donations to my right-handed charity by cash or check. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Today is a little bit of a different show because each and every Friday we tend to focus a lot on movies and TV. But today we're actually going to be taking a big old dive into books in a big way. But they're still tied to movies, as you will see. That uh, we're going to talk to you about in just a minute here. And also it coincides well with a movie release that uh, it's the movie is released today, actually. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, we have a couple bits of news. Cole, I know As you we always do. You wanted to talk about a couple of things that I'm not very familiar with, actually. Well, as we've mentioned before on the show, Disney's getting ready to launch their own streaming service in 2019, right? Sure. And they're doing this because they have such a backlog of great movies. They have 21 Marvel movies now. They have all their Disney animated features. And they have Star Wars. I can't wait to not sign up for that app. But do they have Star Wars? Because <laughs> for people that are excited to do it, maybe I can persuade you not to today. Did really? you know that in 2016, Disney sold the the TV, the streaming, the the replay rights to the original trilogy of Star Wars movies, the good ones, right? A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, <gasps> Return of the Jedi, to Turner Broadcasting. That's right. They've been showing up on TNT. When you watch TNT late at night, you'll probably see one of the Star Wars movies. That deal runs through 2024. Ooh. And Turner is not interested in just giving those movies back to Disney. Of course Just because they have a streaming service. Now, could they be bought out? Could they be convinced with money? That's possible, and if anyone in the entertainment industry has money to throw at people, it's Disney, right? Sure. But as of today, the Disney rights, the Star Wars rights, belong to Turner, and they would not be. If they had to roll out the streaming service, the Disney Netflix today, it would not have the first three Star Wars movies. Oh, I hope that that TNT holds out for more money or just just downright refuses to Against give those big, films back. Against big, bad Disney. It's interesting who we tend to root for now. <laughs> 
I mean, how great of a feeling would that be against Disney that you know you have that over them? You can just hang it over them. You can put your hands behind your head, put your feet up on the desk and say, what do you got, Disney? And if I'm TNT, I'm playing a Star Wars movie every night at 6 o'clock, just prime time, let people know. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Well, luckily I own, I think, pretty much most of them. That's good. Yeah, and I, I've got the VHS tapes as well. In other streaming... Well, and I, I think that's going oh, yeah. to be the way that we handle this Disney app situation. I don't think we'll sign up. I think we'll just... If there's a movie we really like, we'll just buy it or check it out from the library. Or go or to my attic where I probably have all of the Disney... <laughs> On VHS. My parents' <laughs> attic, at least. So... Disney's got their streaming thing. DC, we talked about their streaming thing as well. Their newest movie is in theaters that they wanted to kind of get hype behind for their new streaming service. Uh, Teen Titans Go to the movies. And at the end of Very that movie... clever title. At, I enjoy it. At the end of that movie, they kind of tease the original looking Teen Titans, also cartoony, coming back maybe. You want to stick around for their post credit scene. It's interesting. Okay. Um, they tease them maybe coming back to the streaming service. But I've got an interesting tidbit about that movie. Um, you're a voiceover kind of guy. You enjoy animation and things like that. Yeah. And animation normally comes with a certain budget. Right. Mm -hmm. Hotel Transylvania is the concurrent animated movie going on right now, and its budget is eighty million dollars. That movie should be called Adam Sandler Goes on Vacation. And Adam Sandler does take <laughs> up a bit of that budget, but that's your norm for an animated movie. What would you guess Teen Titans Go to the Movies budget is? Well, gosh, mm. I would think that budget would be. Or are there any like major celebrities doing the voiceovers? Not particularly. Tara Strong is the voice of Raven. She's as yeah. big as it gets in just VO standpoint. You never have to pay those guys too much, though. As good as they are, mm -hmm. and they're in everything. Yeah. Um. Oh gosh. Animated Pick movies a number are one to a hundred. <laughs> they're not as cheap as you would think, though. I'm gonna guess. $40 million. That would be on the low end, and I don't think there is an animated feature coming out this year that's going to be that low, except for Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which has got a budget of $10 million. Good for them. As of this week, they've already made $14 million. They've got another weekend coming where they will get up to that important double-the-budget kind of yeah. benchmark. It's already based on a TV show. They have a lot of the drawings kind of in existence. It's such a cheap movie. They're making money, and they'll be able to shove it to the streaming service as soon as it's out of theaters. So <laughs> I, I've i been tempted to go see this movie solely for the fact that there have just – there's been nothing offered for kids this year outside of like Incredibles 2 and Paddington 2. So a bunch of sequels, nothing but sequels. Is it something that you have to have seen the TV show to enjoy? No. Oh, really? Nope. It's just hmm. you don't even have to know who they are. They're just – picture them as heroes that are kids that are going to do goofy things. Okay. Um, it'll maybe be I'll take my kids to see it. <laughs> um, or maybe I won't because as has been talked about in uh, the media quite extensively, people are having a very difficult time using their movie pass. And, and we are two of them. And that is one of the reasons why we will not be giving a review for the newest release, Christopher Robin. But uh, more on that in just a second. The trouble really started last Thursday when people wanted to go see 
the the preview or the the advanced screening or the Thursday night showing of Mission Impossible. Weekends really Fallout. do last four days now. Right. Days. Mm-hmm. I luckily went early in the day and got my tickets ahead of time, but all the other people that just showed up at the movie theater and tried to open up their app and purchase tickets to Mission Impossible, and they may have even been willing to do the peak pricing, they couldn't. The app showed no screenings of it. And Cole, you were one of those people, right? Yep. Showed up to the theater, wanted to watch the movie, didn't. Well, didn't get to use MoviePass. I paid for so, it out of pocket. Uh, let's just say MoviePass uh, subscribers were less than thrilled. And the trouble didn't really stop there because there seemed to be outages the entire weekend. Now, MoviePass presented it in the vein of... We are having technical difficulties. Exactly. But it didn't take very long for people uh, to dig up something that was going on behind the curtain, if you will. The the money of it all. Right. We c- we come to find out that MoviePass is trying to buy five or uh, borrow five million dollars just to keep their lights on for the weekend. So basically, they shut down the service because they can't afford to buy all these tickets. They can't afford to provide the service that they've promised to millions of subscribers. And MoviePass, when they buy a ticket from a movie theater, they pay full price. Yes. So they shut down the service. They had more problems on Monday, and then from there, it seemed like we were getting a new announcement by the hour from the CEO of MoviePass. First of which being, oh, from now on, when uh, new movies come out, you're going to have to wait two weeks to go see them, right? And then we find out, oh, uh, from now on, the uh, MoviePass is no longer going to be $10 a month. It's going to be $15 a month. And then we hear, well, movies may not be available at all times at all theaters. And I found that out the hard way when I went to the movies on Tuesday night, showed up at the theaters, clicked on every theater I could see on the list. There are no screenings at this theater. (sighs) Frustrating. But I think people – I appreciate every once in a while seeing comments of, I don't know what's with all the hate coming from people about MoviePass. I've seen X number of movies, way more than I ever would have seen with without MoviePass. So thank you, MoviePass. I would like to thank MoviePass to an extent. They've we Cole and I both knew this wouldn't last forever. We both knew we were going to have to milk it for all it was worth while it was worth anything. And I think we have. <laughs> we totally have. Um, and I think if you look at it in a different way, it helps – give you some perspective. Now we've kind of reached the point where MoviePass, for lack of a better description, has become a coupon book, right? You know, those coupon books you used to buy for 20 bucks or so, and it would give you access to all of these discounted uh, rates on your favorite restaurants, your favorite attractions. That's essentially what MoviePass is becoming. You'll pay the $15 a month. It'll now be $15 a month. And not everything's going to be available. Not all the showings are going to be available. Sometimes you're going to have to pay more to see a certain showing. So if you do the math, though, in the end, you're still paying a little bit less than if you were to just buy the tickets outright at the box office. So in a way, it's still a good deal. And I was excited to discover, even though I canceled my monthly movie pass, I discovered that my wife's movie pass, which was on an annual plan, doesn't expire until January 2019. 
So occasionally, I will be going to the movies with my movie pass. With your wife's movie pass. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but we won't tell anybody about that, right? Um, yeah, and we won't tell anybody about how I used to have an annual pass and my account was canceled. Because you violated their terms of service. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. I wouldn't. It's the lo- legal way of looking at it. Okay, we need to move on, Cole. Um, You wanted to talk about Christopher Robin, which comes out today, and unfortunately, we won't be seeing for at least two weeks. Yes, because of the sad, sad demise-ish of MoviePass. Neither one of us got to see it last night, as we normally do before we do the show. But I am still really excited, and I will go and see Christopher Robin at some point, because... It it looks so good, and it looks like a great family film. Sure. Oh, yeah. So the premise here, think think 1990s Hook-ish, where okay. you have a fictional character that was a kid that then grows up and becomes a part of corporate America or corporate Britain, I think, in those two movies' cases. Businesses um, ruin the innocent. The big bad businessman <laughs> now. So Peter Pan comes into the real world and, and becomes an old Robin Williams grump. Sure. Uh, but then he finds his youthfulness by going back to Neverland. Um, and here in Christopher Robin, it's a similar thing, where Christopher Robin, the boy, had all of these adventures in the Hundred Acre Wood, but then he grew up. Forgot about that adventure, and now the Hundred Acre Wood has to come to him to remind him of the value of family and and seizing the day and good Disney things. <laughs> Interesting. You know, I was surprised. My kids never watch these films, and we own one or two of them. They yeah. never watch them. And yet when the trailer for this came up, we were sitting there in the movie theater. My four-year-old says, it's Pooh. It's Pooh. So somehow she knows who he is, so maybe I ought to take them to go see it. Uh, it kind of reminds me. It's half me. animated. You've been lamenting That's over true. the lack of animated kids' movies. That's true. Okay. Pooh and, Pooh and the gang look realistic-ish, but it's... So I've got two to go take them to. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of another movie that we've mentioned on the show before that you really ought to check out. It's on Netflix. Um, also based on a book, a book series, really. Okay. Um, also a very similar theme of growing up. And trying to retain some of that childhood magic, mm-hmm. it is The Little Prince. Yeah. Starring Rachel McAdams, Jeff Dan- – or not Jeff Daniels, uh, Jeff um, uh, Bridges. Sorry, Jeff Bridges is in it. He's the more famous of the Jeffs. I don't know why Jeff Daniels was easy to get out. Um and it's about this little girl who strikes up this friendship with this old man next door who is kind of eccentric, is an inventor, and he tells her these stories of this little prince who lived on this planet and met all these interesting characters. And later on in the film, uh, she goes to and sees this little prince who has grown up, and she has to try to help him remember where he came from. And it's it's one of the most beautiful films I've seen in years, and it's right there on Netflix. And uh, not sure it was ne- why it was never released in movie theaters. But the reason we're talking about The Little Prince and we're talking about Christopher Robin is kind of to springboard us into our main conversation. A lot of times when we uh, a lot of times when we see a movie, people complain, "Oh, the book was way better than the movie." And a lot of instances, not surprisingly, that is true. However, occasionally, sometimes people are introduced to a story through the movie and then discover, "Hey, there's a book about this. 
I want to go read this. Well, when we return, Cole and I are going to be discussing films that make us want to read, which is a really good thing when we return here on Screen Cleaning. movies. You ever talk about a movie with someone that happens to have read the book? They're always so condescending. Uh, the book was much better. <laughs> oh, really? What I enjoyed about the movie? No reading. <laughs> yeah. It only took two hours, and then I could take a nap. That was Jim Gaffigan poking a little bit of fun at people who prefer the book over the movie. And uh, we played that because we're actually going to be talking about that in a way today here on Screen Cleaning. You know, so often people will read the book prior to seeing the movie, and often they're disappointed. But there are also instances where people's first experience to this story is through the movie. And they enjoy the movie sometimes so much that it puts them in Peaks books. their curiosity, maybe. It gets them reading again, and that, my friend, is a good thing. Anytime somebody stops what they're doing, takes a moment to just slow down, open up a book, feel that paper between their fingers, and have that, that wonderful accomplishing feeling of turning a page. It's seriously, I, I feel very accomplished whenever I read a book or even a chapter in a book. I mostly listen to audiobooks, so I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, well, I do both. So, uh, Shazam. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's a, a quip, but... It anyway. is a comic book. <laughs> that trailer looks pretty funny, actually. Oh, I'm ready. I, I couldn't help but think of the movie Big when I saw that trailer. As you should. But anyway, we digress. So here's what we're going to do, Cole. You and I each have three picks, and maybe an honorable mention or two, mm-hmm. as uh, always. for... Movies that made us want to read. Yes. So I'm going to start by by doing a book that's probably not one that people have read. However, more than likely they have seen one of the versions of this story. The story is The Body Snatchers by Jack ah. Finney. So Jack Finney also wrote a couple of other stories that you might be familiar with, one of which is called Time and Again and From Time to Time. It's this time-traveling love story. But The Body Snatchers involves what is now known in popular culture as pod people, right? These aliens (laughs) that come down from outer space, these uh, mysterious seedlings grow into these bigger pods, and while you sleep— uh, these pods or these uh, exact replicas of you come out and take over your body, and they're the exact same person as you, same memories, same blemishes, um, uh, but the only thing is they can't experience love or feelings. Aww. So they're, this— They're the real tragedy of the story then. Right. It's kind of like the original Nightmare on Elm Street— Don't fall asleep, playing on people's fears of falling asleep. Then, of course, they made these uh, several movies, the one in 1956, 
where they play on people's fear of McCarthyism and like, oh, anybody could be a communist. It could be you. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be your milkman. And you would never know because they look like regular people, right? My favorite version of this film is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version with Listen to this cast. These okay. three people alone is enough to sell you on watching the movie. Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah. Donald Sutherland. Oh, yeah. Leonard Nimoy. Oh, yeah. Yes. That cast alone is worth watching. And this is the film that really got me interested in reading the book. And I'm so glad that I did because Jack Finney is an author that I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about or have never even heard of in the first place. And it's a shame because his writing is top notch and he's able to give you this really suspenseful story. Any story like this I'm a fan of where it's basically one person versus the world, right? There, of course, were a couple of other versions, one in 1993 called simply Body Snatchers, which I've never seen. And then one in 2007 starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman called The Invasion. I personally liked it. It has a 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the 78 version is the one to see, in my opinion. And like I said, it did the great thing of getting me into books. It sounds like they have no other ways to spin that title into anything different. They've used the invasion. They've used the body snatchers part. They've used the whole thing. They've. Uh, if there's maybe, a fifth movie, what are they calling it, Jeff? Maybe they could. Uh, maybe it could go back to like the movies of Frank Whale. You know, I think I'm getting that name right. The Frankenstein guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it'll be like body of invasion of the body snatchers. Yes. Or son of the invasion. Son, yeah, there it or, is. Or bride, of, of, bride mm-hmm. of the body snatcher. The curse of the body snatchers. Yes. There's, there's plenty of iterations. The body right, snatchers we'll returns. <laughs> okay, Cole, what's your first pick? So I'm going to start with the most juvenile of my of the literacy merits of the movies of, that were based on the books that have literacy merit. Um, I'm going to start with the most juvenile and work my way up. So in... The summer, right after, right around the time I graduated, I was reading a lot of young adult fiction because I myself was a young adult. Now, sure. young adult fiction is somewhat of a misnomer because it's always about teenagers, right? not actually young adults in their 20s. Mm-hmm. But I went to see a movie about some teenagers with special powers because that's a favorite among the young adult narrative. I think I know where this is and going. And it was called I Am Number Four. Really? It wasn't a great movie. And- it's probably not a great book because all those books follow a similar narrative, but I want to talk about this movie in a in a movies that made us want to read context because okay. up until this point in my life, I had done a lot of reading. I had read The Hunger Games, The Divergent series, Harry Potter, a bit of Twilight. I'm not afraid to admit I that. I think I've heard of those books. Well, this was my... I, We've established I'm a little bit younger than you. Sure. Um, My generation, I was reading all of those before I went to the movies. But this movie, playing in a double feature with something else that I actually wanted to watch, I got to see this same kind of young adult story that was based on a book that I hadn't read yet. Hmm. So as I was watching, I was thinking to myself, you know, he's doing the voiceover, kind of explaining the world. And I thought, you know what? That's probably way more interesting in the book. Oh, this is the place where they're skipping over things. Oh, This was probably a better character in the book. Like, all these moments that I was used to complaining about because I had read the books and I was that guy that thought the books were always better, I got to see a movie 
based on a book that I hadn't read yet. And and I still could see the places where the movie makers were taking their liberties or I thought, you know what, this is probably just as good of a book as all those other ones. It's got a movie out of it. Um, <laughs> it had to be good, right? It had to be at least a little bit. People had to have read it. But I could tell where it was missing those things where normally as a book reader, I would be the one complaining. Hmm. Interesting. I am number four. Okay, so don't see the movie, but maybe read the book. Well, and so up until this point, I thought coming home from the movie theater, I want to read that book. And I still haven't. And now I'm probably a little bit old to read about teen drama superpower things. But it it did make me think this book, I understand. I understand what's going on now to all the people that just watched the movie without reading the book. I understand their plight when they're missing out on things. Okay, Cole. Well, to be fair to our listeners, we may have to do a follow-up show where you actually have read I Am Number Four. It wouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> I, could, I could embrace my inner teenager for a second and do that for you. So I like that pick because uh, what I gleaned from from your description of that movie is that sometimes – what we can imagine is so much better than what we see on the screen. Yes. That's not necessarily the case for my next pick. My next pick is a very well-known movie and book, but it had to be on my list because this is the film that really uh, sparked this topic for me. This is the one that thought, that that made me think we ought to do a topic on this, and it is the Jurassic Park franchise. So we just had the release of uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Good. I had to think about that for a minute. And we, we've we both established that nothing really comes close to the original movie. But this one was not bad as far as entertaining you and giving you a good laugh about how ridiculous the series has become. And it really made me pine for the original Jurassic Park movie and the original Jurassic Park book, which I have read. And the reason I mention sometimes the imagination is better than what is actually on screen is because sometimes you actually don't see something on screen. And so you have to imagine, right? Steven Spielberg did a really good job taking books and putting them to film because he didn't lose out on that. Right. So there's a scene in the movie. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by mentioning that... Spoiling this 25-year-old movie? Sure. Samuel L. Jackson's character, Arnold, I think it's John Arnold, dies. He (gasps) goes out to this utility shed where he's going to turn on all the power and basically do a, a fresh reboot. And we never see him make that journey. Well, it turns out the reason for that is because... There was a hurricane, a tropical storm in Hawaii where the movie set was that just destroyed everything. And it wasn't safe. They couldn't get Samuel L. Jackson over there to film the scene. So they it just was, became an off-screen death. Okay. However, if you read the book, you know what happens to his character. You go – you travel with him into the utility shed – He uses his shoe to prop open the door so that there can be light in the room because, remember, there's no power. Right. And he's going toward the the breaker or whatever you would call it, and all of a sudden, it's completely dark (gasps) in this control room. Oh, no. And he turns around, 
and blocking the natural light is a velociraptor. Dum, dum, dum. Another thing I love about this book is that it's perfect for people like me who love short chapters and need that sense of accomplishment. Because if you read a short chapter, it doesn't matter how short it was, you think to yourself, I read a chapter, an entire chapter I read. But he goes beyond that. Not only are the chapters short, but the chapters are like they they constantly are changing perspective. So you have like a little chunk of of uh, of the book in Arnold's uh, coming from Arnold's perspective. Then you go back to uh, the Hammond character. Then you switch over to the Ian Malcolm character. So it's just kind of all over the place. And it just really makes you feel like an accomplished reader. And it's quite thrilling and enjoyable. So I can relate to that a little bit because this next book that I want to talk about, when I was reading it through audiobook means, Mm -hmm. he wasn't telling me when another chapter started. So I just had to kind of rely on when he paused for a little bit longer than normal to think, okay, I can pause here. But I I never got that dopamine rush of accomplishment because he never told me, we're starting a new chapter now. And so it was distracting. I understand that. Now I'm curious. The next book and movie, though, that I would like to talk about is a little bit older. So now I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm trying to find a good adult book for me to read. And I go back and thinking, you know, what do what do adults read? And I remembered a movie that came out, two movies that came out in the late 2000s, called The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, based on uh, novels yes. by Dan Brown. yes. I did not see these movies when they came out because it didn't seem like something that interested me. Okay. But because those movies existed and because we can admit the movies have a little bit more of a reach than books in sure. popular culture, mm-hmm. that's what made me want to read. Although so, these books are very popular. The, the books are extreme and that's what got them into movie form mm-hmm. in the first place. But for me, my first exposure was the fact that the movie existed. So when I was thinking, what book do I want to read now? I remembered those movies – and wanted to read the book, even though I hadn't seen them, didn't know the quality or anything. So I read the books. Turns out, um, for people that are just relying on the movies like me, the Da Vinci Code movie came first. Angels and Demons, the book, came first. Whoa. So I started with Angels and Demons, the book, read that, and then watched the movie. So I knew of the movie, then read the book, then watched the movie. So I still read the book before I actually watched it, this like a good reader. Cole. Now, it's It makes sense to me. <laughs> okay. And I needed... I I like to read the book before I watch the movie, but the movie existing is what gave me the exposure and knowledge of Dan Brown being the the accomplished adult author that he is. One thing I'll say about uh, The Da Vinci Code, I actually read – no, no, no. Yes, I read the book before the movie, which is rare for That's me. good right? of you. Here's the problem with the movie. It's not good. I did not like it, and the movie did – a great disservice to me because after watching the movie, it made me like the book even less. Aw. I, yeah, that's unforgivable because I really enjoyed the book at the time. All right, Cole, this one I'm super excited about because I'm sure very few of our listeners have read this book or even knew that this movie was based on a book. And this pick is a little different from my other picks in that I didn't like this movie. I did not like it. I used to be a huge Jim Carrey fan, and I still get quite a bit of joy going back and watching some of his old classics. It's funny to say classics and Jim Carrey in the same sentence, but I just said it. There you go. He made a film 
called Yes Man. And the film is about this guy who is either separated or divorced from his wife. He's kind of depressed, and he turns down all these invitations from his friends to go hang out. He's kind of a no-man, if you will, Mm. right? Well, he finds out about this seminar that is all about saying yes to life, saying yes to everything. And he takes it quite literally, and he says yes to every invitation, every opportunity, Uh, and kind of the mishaps and opportunities that that come up because of that new outlook on life, right? Well, the movie's quite crude, uh, not really that funny, and kind of a poor effort from Jim Carrey, I think. But I found out it was based on a book, and I thought, oh, if this is based on a real guy that decided for one year he was going to say yes to everything, it's got to be entertaining, right? Interesting, at least. And It was both, Cole. Interesting and entertaining. It's written by a man named Danny Wallace, who really did this for an entire year. He said yes to everything. So he took this challenge quite literally. Uh, And here, I want to give you the synopsis of this book. uh, I got this from Amazon. Basically, for an entire year, Danny Wallace lived as if the word no did not exist. Here's what happened. He won $45,000. Whoa met the world's only hypnotic dog, earned a nursing degree, and traveled the globe. And those are just some of the really wacky examples that you'll find in this book. I'm trying to think back to the last time someone asked me, would you like to get a nursing degree or would you like to travel the globe, to which I would have had to say yes. And it hasn't happened to me. You know, and there are plenty of books that you can find out there about, you know, the power of no or the power of yes. Um, But it's... It's such an interesting exercise. I love books like this where somebody takes something to an extreme. Another example, they haven't made a movie out of this, but another example is um, the I think it's called the Red Paperclip Project or something, where there's this game where you try to find something, you try to take something and exchange it for something oh, yeah. that's bigger or better, right? So The Office did this with their yard sale episode. Where oh, you I just don't remember that. Trade, you start with something that's seemingly useless and valueless, and you just trade it and try to trade up just a little bit each time to the point where you've essentially for free traded a paperclip for right. something of value. So this guy started with a red paperclip and ended up with a house. That was his goal from the beginning, and he did it. Nice. It's amazing. So uh, that's another one I want to read. So what's your last pick, Cole? My last pick is the one whose book has the most literary merit. It's one that most people had to read in high school even, and it's called The Great Gatsby. And the movie that made me want to read is the most recent one, but I think it's worth noting that before I read the book the first time in high school, I did watch the Mia Farrow, um, Robert Redford, 1970-something version of it. And I've even seen the Paul Rudd TV movie version as well as I was trying to slog my way through as a high schooler this book. But then I watched the 2013 version with Leonardo DiCaprio that really, really got the Gilded Age-ness of The Great Gatsby and put it onto screen in a way I had never seen before with kind of like modern music going on as well to capture a younger generation and give them an idea of what the Jazz Age was all about and this opulence and everything going on. And it made me want to go back and read a book that I vaguely remembered and I loved it. There is a reason that everyone is supposed to read this book in high school. 
I think it's an amazing book, and I would never have gone back to revisit it after all those years and given it the credit that it's due for being one of America's masterpieces if it hadn't been for another movie coming out. So I've seen all three movies, but it's the most recent one that really inspired me to go back and read and to find what is now maybe one of my favorite books. I I really I love everything about The Great Gatsby. So we're we're kind of running out of time now, Jeff. Do you want to give a couple honorable mentions though before we cut out? So again, we're talking about movies that drove us to read, right? That we enjoyed so thoroughly, or maybe we thought, "Gosh, I hated the movie, but the the book sounds interesting." Uh, Forrest Gump is a movie I love, and I it made me want to read the book, right? I abandoned that very quickly. Uh, Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. The movie is way better than the book. Okay. Sorry, Mr. Jim Gaffigan. Uh, you mentioned a book that you're not really sure where the where the chapter ends and a new one begins. Right. A, a confusing author to read is Cormac McCarthy, who wrote No Country for Old Men. I saw the movie first, wanted to see, wanted to read the book. The book is almost identical to the movie, but he doesn't use punctuation. Hmm. So it's it's kind of uh, un, not unsettling, but it's it's kind of confusing. Like, oh, is the entire book like this? Is this just for one character? Nope, the entire book. I'm pretty sure for all of his books. But those are my honorable mentions. All right, so my honorable mentions would include Thor Ragnarok, which reminded for how much I disliked that movie, it was a crazy bright, lit-up space adventure, which reminded me of Walt Simonson's run on the comic The Mighty Thor back Mm -hmm, in the 1980s. mm -hmm. So because I didn't like that movie, I went back and found my my comfort zone, my safe place, where I could just read comics and love Thor again. (laughs) (laughs) To see you in a corner in the fetal position after watching that movie. I was scarred. But then somebody puts the comic book in front of you and you're like, I can can breathe again. I'm clean. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's more or less what happened. Okay, It, the TV movie, was one of my favorite horror movies, and I've talked about that before. It drove me to read, and I was very confused. Um, that is a book that I cannot in good conscience recommend to anyone sure. because it is a little too crazy. It's very Stephen Kingy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, The Bourne Legacy, which was the one that didn't have Matt Damon come back for Jason Bourne, was yes. also based on a book. But it wasn't Robert Ludham's books. So he had those three originally. If you look at the – the funny thing about this book though is that on the cover, the biggest thing on the cover is still Robert Ludham's name. Of course. And then the next biggest thing is The Bourne Legacy and then the actual author, Eric Van Lustbunder. (laughs) <laughs> is a real small name at the bottom, but at the top it says, based on the characters by Robert Ludham. I don't like it when books do that, when when they confuse you with the marketing. I just came across one just yesterday when I was doing some research for this because one of uh, my other honorable mentions could be Psycho, which I also prefer the movie to the book. Mm-hmm. But I just found out there's another book in the series, a fourth book that takes place between book one and book two but, of course, not written by the original author, Robert Block, who's passed away. Ugh, it's so confusing, and it's not right. Not right. They shouldn't try to confuse us that no, way. No, but they want to make money. 
So, as you know, our mission here on Screen Cleaning is to shine a big old spotlight in all that is good. And we honestly don't talk enough about books. And I'm so glad that we did today because other than just entertaining us and helping us forget about some of our problems, maybe, one service that movies uh, perform for us is that movies make us want to read. And that is one of the most satisfying experiences that you can have in life, to pick up a book and read it cover to cover, to feel that paper and the ink in between your fingers. You really feel like a better person when you're reading, depending on what you're reading, of course. But uh, hopefully we've given you some ideas of, of books that you can pick up and have just a great read and a great couple of weeks or a couple of months, depending on how long it takes you to read that book and how many times. And how thick the book is. Right. Yeah. And how many times you have to renew it from your library. But there you have it. That is uh, our discussion on movies that make us want to read here on Screen Cleaning. You know, Cole and I have talked a little bit about our movie pass woes, and not to make you feel sorry for us, but, uh, you know, because it's what's happening, it's what's somewhat important to us right now. But one of the movies. And a few other million people. One of the movies I got to see using my movie pass that Cole did not was Mission Impossible Fallout. And as much as I enjoyed seeing it in the movie theaters, I probably would have enjoyed it so much more. Had I been one of the lucky 2,000 fans that uh, were dedicated enough to go to one of the key cliffhanging, if you will, <laughs> scenes in the movie, which was in Norway, uh, above this fjord, that 2,000 people were treated to a special screening of Mission Impossible Fallout. How surreal would that be? On location, watching the movie. Yeah. You're watching the movie, and you're seeing this scene happening on the screen. You're turning around, and you're in that same setting. That would be so surreal. Well, I love you look, that. Look behind you, and that's exactly the cliff that Tom Cruise is falling off of, and you think, oh, I could fall off it too. I am terrified of heights. And there's this great picture of the screen that's set up and all these people that are watching it, and even some of the brave people that are on the very edge of the cliff watching it. Brave or Yeah. Tom something. Cruise, I love this too. Tom Cruise tweeted, 2,000 feet, 2,000 people, four hours of hiking, the most impossible screening of Mission Impossible Fallout. Thank you all for coming. I wish I could have been there. Yeah, he was probably skydiving somewhere else. <laughs> Doing something else exciting. Yeah. Speaking of that, did you see the video of him skydiving with James Corden? Uh, yes, I definitely I loved did. that. And I'm sure I would have been just like James Corden in that situation, sans all the swearing that was going on. But He was terrified. I am terrified just like watching that video, I was getting terrified. Like, I don't know if I could ever do that. But then an interesting thing happened that's never happened to me before as I was watching it. And thinking of the idea of, like, skydiving with Tom Cruise and being, in some ways, pushed out of the plane. Oh, yeah. Which I, is probably what it would was, take. There was a small part of me that thought, maybe I do want to do that. However, I love my low insurance rates too much for that to it happen. It came and went. Yeah. 
Interesting. Tom and, Cruise, and if I was ever going to go skydiving, it would be with someone that is a professional and done it a hundred times, you know, and that's what he did. James Corden was strapped to a guy that's done this. Done but it Tom like Cruise, 7,000 times, I think. Tom Cruise was so casual because even just doing the shooting for this one Mission Impossible movie, let alone the other movies that require these insane things, he shot, to do the one in Fallout, he jumped out of a plane over a hundred times with Henry Cavill to shoot their little... Exactly. Fight in the air. So, as you know, we like to end each one of our shows with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> with our panning for good segment, we do our darndest to shine a spotlight on something that you might have to look a little harder for, but that is noteworthy and things that parents can probably feel safe showing their children. And uh, today we're focusing on a movie that, again, you're probably going to have to look a little harder for. It is actually a documentary. And ever since Cole defied me to or, uh, yeah, he, he challenged me to think of a documentary that I've seen in the movie theaters. And I was only able able to come up with one. But since then, I've seen Will You uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the movie about Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. And now I can say I've seen two this year. Wow. Uh, and uh, I'm going to set the stage here a little bit. Imagine it's your freshman year of college. Cole, for you, that was not too long ago. I can, I can remember it vividly. You've just arrived on campus, and you're receiving a surprisingly generous welcome from the rest of the student body. Hmm. Complete strangers. You're greeted with smiles, waves, high fives, and even some kisses right on the mouth. And for some strange reason, people keep calling you by another name. On his first day of college, Bobby Shaffron set out to find the man his peers kept mistaking him for, his twin brother he didn't know existed. Once the two find each other, they are, of course, ecstatic. Imagine their joy when they discover they have another twin brother. And that's where the story gets even crazier. There's three of them. From there, they're inseparable. It's as if no time has passed at all, and they've known each other their whole lives. They seem to have the same habits, the same taste in music, sports, even women. Now, here's where the film takes an abrupt turn from the joy of discovery to focus on the burning question of why. Why were these three boys who were all adopted into different families separated at birth? And here's where things kind of turn into a little bit of a conspiracy theory, but not as much once the facts start coming out, okay? Um, the, the film focuses on the mental health of these families and of these boys. It focuses on the differences in their financial situation. They, they show you that one of the families is more blue-collar, one is kind of middle of the road, and then the other is quite wealthy, Right. But really, it all comes down to nature versus nurture. These circumstances that we're born under, do they define who we are going to become? So if we are, if we have two other identical twins, are we destined to be exactly like them in every way, no matter how we're raised? Or is the way we're brought up more important? And I am certainly of the mindset of, Your upbringing has a lot to do with 
who you are, who you can become. And unfortunately for these boys, they lost so many years of their lives not knowing that the other one even existed. And then also think of the pain of the parents of these three boys who gladly would have adopted all three of them. And the, the really sad thing is we're not left with a lot of answers as to why this happened in the first place. Now, I don't want to give too much away beyond that, even though I feel like I've given way too much away already. But this is a very fascinating film that is going to raise a lot of questions in your mind. And anytime you can do that going to the movies, that's a good thing. And from a true story at that. Absolutely. So seek this film out. The storytelling in this movie is fantastic. You will be thoroughly entertained. Your heart will be a little broken. But uh, again, you'll be thoroughly entertained. And it's, it's appropriate to take your family to for the most part. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We're going to be back next week to give you the very best in entertainment. Ideas for parents who are looking to help their children be entertained with things that are of a higher level, we'll just say. That's next week. Coming up next, BYU Sports Nation. BYU Sports Nation.